Welcome to this episode of Beads Podcast, a weekly reflection on church history with Dr. Michael A.G. Haken. Dr. Haken serves as the chair and professor of church history at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. He's also a fellow of the Royal Historical Society in recognition of his contributions to historical scholarship. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. The name of Henry Melville Gwatkin, who was born at the beginning of the Victorian era in 1844 and who died in the midst of the First World War in 1916, is probably remembered today solely by those who have spent some time studying the history of Arianism. For his Studies of Arianism, which he published in 1882, remains a classical study of this ancient heresy. But his Christian witness as a historian is a deeply attractive one that merits broader remembrance. Raised in a broad-minded evangelical home, Guatkin became deaf as a young boy when he experienced an attack of scarlet fever. But this does not seem to have curbed his intellectual development, though. He had a love for history from an early age and in time developed that requisite for good historical scholarship, namely accuracy which his biographer, Territ Reevely Glover, the Cambridge classicist and a liberal Baptist, once recalled, was always his passion. This concern for accuracy gave him a wonderful knowledge of original sources and understandably led to the accumulation of a large library of books. But he also had a concern for relating the past to the present, always a good quality in an historian, so preventing him from becoming a mere antiquarian. As he said in the preface to his two-volume Early Church History to AD 313, and he was responding to the argument that facts of history, simply enumerated, speak for themselves. No attempt has been made to conceal personal opinions. The mere analyst may be able to do it, but the historian cannot. Events, and still more men, cannot be understood without imagination and sympathy. And imagination and sympathy involve opinions which, whether true or false, can always be disputed. Since then, such opinions must of necessity color the narrative. They are better frankly stated than silently taken for granted. Impartiality does not consist in a refusal to form opinions or in a futile concealment of them under a lofty affectation of treating history scientifically, but in forming them by a single-hearted effort to realize the lives of men and women and think their thoughts again and understand their whole environment. Our power is strictly measured by our sympathy. The demand of some that personal opinions should not be discoverable means the abolition of everything that can be reasonably called history. Guatquin's great goal in life, to become a professor of ecclesiastical history at Cambridge University, was realized in 1891 when he was appointed in this capacity as a fellow at Emmanuel College, that one-time seedbed of Puritan preachers. Here he shone as a lecturer and tutor in church history. The notices of his life in the Dictionary of National Biography recalled him as a clear, witty, stimulating, and when he chose, eloquent lecturer. He also had the opportunity to provide spiritual counsel for many of the students that passed through Emmanuel Halls. The last years of his life were spent during the terrible horrors of World War I, but he never lost a sense of the fact that eternal love in Christ is sovereign, as he put it in a letter he wrote in August of 1916. 
That very month he was knocked down by a car that he had not heard because of his deafness. He died three months later. His studies of Arianism is still a good study of the Arian controversy. How interesting to learn, then, that he detested the burden of writing that particular book, that pestiferous book he appears to have regularly called it, but how helpful it has proven to students of that heresy. His final work of church history was his posthumously published Church and State in England to the Death of Queen Anne, published in 1917. It reveals a deft understanding of the importance of the English Reformation in giving shape to the Church of England as a Protestant body. But Guatkin was also aware of the value of the thought and lives of those who found themselves compelled to separate from the Church of England, namely those whom we call Puritans. For instance, here is his estimation of the character of Oliver Cromwell, often regarded by Anglicans with deep disdain. But Guatkin was an evangelical. Here is his comments from his final work on Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell was the most sagacious statesman of his time. His general temper was noble and unselfish, kindly to strangers and magnanimous to enemies. Cromwell nearly always leaned to mercy. His religion was as genuine as that of any saint, and if we measure it by his intense belief in prayer, we must rank it very high. Nor was he one of the men whose goodness begins and ends in religion. Zeal for justice of the poor and oppressed marked his earlier life and remained a striking feature of his whole career. He made his mistakes, and some of his actions may have no good defense. But take him for all in all, we shall scarcely find his like again among the great men lifted by revolution to the dangerous heights of all but autocratic power. And Guatkin's appreciation for the heirs of the English Puritans, namely the evangelicals of the 18th century, is evident in the following text from his two-volume The Knowledge of God and Its Historical Development, where he stated that in, quote, the chief message of these evangelicals, there is an impressive monotony. It is the old word ascribed to Jesus of Nazareth, ye must be born again. And surely they were right in teaching that what does not touch the heart is worthless as a religion, end of quote. The men who preach such a message like John Wesley, he stated, have been the prophets of the modern world. Many a time their preaching has been like streams of water in a barren land of orthodoxy and formalism. Many a time they have gone down among the outcasts of England and made them into self-respecting men, fearing God and eschewing evil. They have been foremost in the war against public wickedness and wrong say, the abominations of the old prisons, the iniquities of the slave trade, the sordid cruelties of the factories. They have been foremost also in every good work of social help. It is the fashion to sneer at them, but no man who cares for truth can fall in with it. I first found his memoir, written by Glover, in the Boyce Library in the campus of the Southern Baptist Seminary. Next to it on the shelf was a volume of his sermons, entitled, the Eye for Spiritual Things and Other Sermons. In one of them, which caught my eye, he spoke on that famous text from Isaiah 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Entitled The Death of Queen Victoria, it was preached at the chapel in Girton College, Cambridge, on January the 27th, 1901, a mere five days after the Queen of the British Empire died. What powerful reverberations her death had sent out to the four corners of that empire that once ruled the waves. 
Watkin well knew, as he said, that England stood at the parting of the ways. The Victorian age is ended. There must and will be change. It's an important sermon in at least a couple of ways. First, it well revealed Watkins' evangelicalism. For after setting the text in its historical context, the historian emphasized that God speaks in change and death and revolution, and he called upon his hearers thus to wholly rely upon the Lord. Then it has a long section in which Watkins spoke in distinctly messianic tones of England's vocation and that of her people. He wrote, England is as much God's people as ever Israel was, and London just as much his dwelling as Jerusalem. Our land is as holy as Judah. Our streets are as near him as the mercy seat of old. It was not for Israel's righteousness or because God loved Egypt and Assyria less than Israel, for there is no respect of persons with him. Neither is it for England's righteousness or because God loves France and Russia less than England, for there is no respect of persons with him. As he chose Israel to do one great work for him, so he has chosen England now to do another. He that brought up Israel from Egypt also brought up the English, and many a time delivered our fathers from the house of bondage. It is he who has made us as the stars of heaven for number, and given us western lands and southern seas for our inheritance. It is he who made peace on our soil, hardly broken by the tread of enemies for the past best part of a thousand years. He who gave the pride of the Spaniard to the winds before us. Here Guatkin is thinking of the defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588. And scattered the fleets of France in the clash of Trafalgar. And here Guatkin is thinking of Horatio Nelson's triumphant naval battle in 1805. To be sure, as Guatkin recognized, God's love for England was not because of England's righteousness. He could be critical of his own people. In another context, he noted that the cold climate of England gave the English their grim energy, but it also had chilled their imagination. And also, as he went on in his sermon on Queen Victoria's death, it was not our own right hand, our wooden walls and streak of silver sea, He's referring here to the British Navy and the English Channel that wrought salvation for us. But the Lord himself has been a wall of fire about us. Our fathers cried to him and he delivered them in many a day of trouble and rebuke to set our rule in the sea and our dominion at the world's end. Gotkin then asked the task for which God had given England safety and succor. If greatness is to be measured by power to do his work, ours without question, and by far the greatest of the nations, God never gave Israel a nobler task than he has laid on England, to witness of truth and peace and mercy to every nation under heaven. Here again we see Guatkin's evangelicalism, but it is also meshed with an Anglo-centric reading of history. Such a reading was not unique to the English Christians of Guatkin's day. Christians in the late Roman Empire, after the Edict of Milan, also spoke in similar sacral tones of the so-called Christian Roman Empire. That God did greatly use the English to spread the gospel to the four corners of the earth in the Protestant century, that is the 19th century, is undisputed fact. But as that century wore on, far too much of English mission became increasingly intermeshed with the conscious dissemination of English culture and the importance of maintaining English agenomy over other cultures. I have a picture in my uh, library of a number of Zulu evangelists around the 1890s 
and uh, we know that they're Zulu evangelists by the by the um, caption underneath the picture. But if you look at the picture, they look like four men in their bowler hats and three-piece suits who've stepped off of uh, uh, Waterloo Station, let alone uh, Zulu evangelists. Uh, one wonders what the Zulus who saw them coming to evangelize them thought. And the danger here is of the fact that the, to accept the gospel was to accept English culture. Though I was born in England, my roots from my mother lie deep in Irish soil, and through her also I have some Welsh stock in my background. I'm married to a Scotswoman, and so my children have Irish and Scottish and a little Welsh blood cursing through their veins. The Queen who died in 1901 was as much Scotland's and Ireland's and Wales' Queen as England's, yet Gwatkin made nary a mention of these other three major peoples from the British archipelago. And the empire that the English built and ran, which God did use for the spread of the gospel, though he was never indebted to that people, was secured as much by the Scots and the Welsh and the Irish as by the English, yet not a peep about this vital fact. While this Anglo-centric reading of history is now history itself, God in his mercy did secure England from the Spanish Armada and the despotism of Napoleon, but to what end? that Britannia might rule the waves, or that English and Irish and Scottish and Welsh voices might proclaim the reign of King Jesus to the nations? Surely the latter. Thankfully, Gwatkin, the evangelical historian, knew this, but also evident in the text that I have read from this sermon are his Victorian Anglo-centricity, which bespeaks a confusion of two empires, Christ's and England's. May we not make the same mistake in our day. Beads Podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of His people.